Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles tonight to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 6. And we'll direct our attention there to the text. We're going to read the entire chapter this evening. It's not very long. And you'll notice as we're reading the text that Ecclesiastes 6 is the low point of the entire book. Some commentators call Ecclesiastes 6 the darkest chapter in all the Bible. The preacher is expressing his disappointment with life. We saw that he had started out expressing that vanity, vanity, all is vanity, and then he developed a more hopeful tone in the last couple of chapters. But now in chapter 6, he comes back again to that same subject that all is disappointment. It's a very pessimistic chapter, and it's like he's gone back to his mentality of looking under the sun. Just looking at life with what he can see through his perspective, looking at all the circumstances around him. And you'll see as we read through the chapter that the preacher is completely disappointed with life. In fact, if you had somebody talk to you the way that the preacher is talking, you would say, we need to get you some help. Because you're at a really low point and you could be a danger to yourself. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 6. The Bible says, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth. Yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof, but a stranger eateth it. This is vanity, and it is an evil disease. If a man beget an hundred children, and live many years, so that the days of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he have no burial, I say that an untimely birth is better than he. For he cometh in with vanity, and he departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness." Moreover, he hath not seen the sun, nor known anything. This hath more rest than the other. Yea, though he live a thousand years twice told, yet hath he seen no good. Do not all go to one place? All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. For what hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. That which hath been is named already, and it is known that it is man. Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is man the better? For who knoweth what is good for man in this life? All the days of his vain life, which he spendeth as a shadow. For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? This evening, as we consider Ecclesiastes chapter 6, I'd like you to think with me about the topic this evening, disappointment under the sun. The preacher is expressing his extreme disappointment with life. By now, he's advanced in his years. He's gone a little ways down the road and he's found that things are not all they're cracked up to be. 
He was told to expect great pleasure, great fun, great satisfaction. And as it turns out, all the things that he had put his hope and confidence in had left him wanting. He expresses at least three disappointments in the passage. And then he leaves us with two haunting questions at the end of chapter 6, which, if left unanswered from God's perspective, are the most depressing of all. Notice his first disappointment in the first two verses. He expresses this thought that you can have it all and enjoy none of it. He describes a man for us to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor. Now, riches, wealth, and honor describes the whole package of what most people are looking for in life. They're thinking, if I could have a lot of stuff, plenty of money to give me security, if I could have the respect of my peers, if people would look to me with honor, then I could really be happy. Now, just to to drive home the point, he says this in verse 2, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth. The idea is, whatever he wants, whatever he desires, he has for himself. There's nothing that's withheld from him. He has it all. We could characterize many of our lives in this way, to be truthful. We have so much. We have been given so much material good, uh, so many blessings in our lives. So many of us have things that, you know, honestly, we come to Christmas time and we try to buy gifts for people and think, what do they want? What do they need? They have so many things already. What could they possibly want more than what they have? I feel the same way. I say to my kids, I don't need anything. I, please don't get me anything. I, I, I don't need anything at all. And my wife says, no, it's good for them to, to learn to give. Okay, all right. I like to say to them, just make me something, uh, something that's from you. That would be more meaningful to me. Now think about this. We have been blessed. We have so much. And yet look at society around us. How many people are really happy? But the problem that he describes in verses 1 and 2 is a problem that he calls common among men. It's an evil, he says, that he's seen often under the sun. And it's this idea that people have been given some great blessings from God, but for one reason or another, they are unable to enjoy the things that God has given to them. God giveth him not power to eat thereof. So here he has all this stuff, but he can't enjoy it. He can't partake of it. It's not evidently for him. Someone else enjoys it in his place. As I was reading this section, I was thinking of how many people work all their lives, looking forward to enjoying retirement. They sock away all kinds of money for the time when they retire, and they talk with great joy and anticipation about how when they're done working, they're going to do this and they're going to do that. They're going to get this motor home and they're going to go and do this activity and they're going to move to this place and they're going to do this activity and that activity. And they think that's when I'm really going to be happy. Most of these people are miserable during their work life. All they can think about is when I retire, finally, I'm going to enjoy my life. And how many of those same people shortly after retirement, die and leave it all behind. It's quite common, you know. Very, very common. From a purely human perspective, this is a tragedy. This is, this is 
terrible. Why, why would we, we look at this and think this is a good thing? There's others who may have it all, but they find that what they have is inaccessible to them. For a variety of reasons, they're not able to enjoy the riches, the the wealth, the honor that God has given to them. The reasons are varied. Sometimes they've become sick. And in their sickness, they can no longer enjoy the things that they have. Uh, Perhaps they've had breaks in their relationships And the people that were with them on the way to that point of acquiring all of this stuff have now abandoned them, are no longer with them, and all of a sudden those things are not so meaningful anymore. Earthly calamities can break out. People labor all their life to get something, and then a war breaks out in the place where they live, and they lose it all. Or uh, through some stroke of, of tragedy, they lose everything after they have worked so hard to get it. And the preacher notices this and he says, this is, this is terrible. This is a, a horrible disappointment. It happens all the time. Just look at the world around you and you would know. Now, God warned us about this because in Psalm 39, verse 6, he tells us, and this is good counsel, surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. Here are people trying to accumulate for themselves, working feverishly to make a a giant nest egg, and then one day, they're just going to turn it over to someone else. And is that person going to care about the nest egg? Are they going to care about all the labor and and how it was collected? No, they're not going to see it the same way. And he says, this is a tragedy. It's a vanity. It is an evil disease in verse 2. I want to remind you, the, the preacher has told us this before in Ecclesiastes, but I want to remind you tonight that earthly riches are terribly unstable. We put so much confidence in the things of this world, so much confidence in accumulating wealth, and we believe that that's going to bring us real security. But if that's where you're hoping to find security, you're going to be terribly disappointed. And chances are you could find yourself losing it all literally in a moment. So the preacher says, this is a disappointment. You can have it all and not even be able to enjoy it. This doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem right. Why would life be this way? His second disappointing observation is found from verses 3 through 6. And now he describes another man who is supremely blessed. This man's blessing is described a little bit differently. In verse number 3, he's described in this way, If a man beget an hundred children and live many years, so that the days of his years be many. Now, I know some of you are thinking, that doesn't sound like a blessing to me. A hundred kids, that's a, that's a lot of kids. That's a lot of mouths to feed, a lot of noise in the house. I, but in this culture and in this way of looking at life, children are in heritage of the Lord. And we believe that, don't we? They're a blessing from God. The, the preacher is using hyperbole to describe a man who has more children than you could imagine anyone having. In other words, he is supremely blessed by God. Not only is he blessed with offspring, with many children, but he also has been given the blessing of long life. 
He's been given the opportunity by God to live for many years. A little bit later in this section, in verse number six, we're told that in this example, this man is going to live a thousand years twice told. Now, obviously, he's not speaking about a literal man who existed or who lived because we know that Methuselah is the oldest man that's recorded in the Bible and he lived about half of that. So this is somebody who lives a really long time. He's describing this guy who has an extraordinarily long life and he has lots of children. In other words, he's been blessed. He's gotten all of these blessings. And here's his second disappointment. You can get all of the blessings and die forgotten and alone. He says something very important in verse 3. Though this man lives for many years, and though he has a hundred children, the Bible says his soul is not filled with good. And also, he has no burial. Now, we don't know exactly what the wise man is trying to express to us here, what it is that happened to this theoretical man that he's describing, but it would seem that this man dies with no burial because he's forgotten. Even though he has a hundred children, evidently none of them want anything to do with him. Uh, Evidently, they're not really interested in helping with his funeral or honoring his memory. Evidently, he's not someone that has great relationships. Now, this is something to think about, isn't it? To think that God could bless us with children, and yet... Because we live in a sin-cursed world, the relationships with our own children can be broken. What a tragedy that would be. And yet, that seems to be what is described here. This man has no burial. Evidently, he's forgotten. Maybe it is that he's lived so long. I mean, 2,000 years is a long time. That everyone else has died, and so there's no one left to, to remember him. Have you ever been to a funeral like that? Probably not, right? Because, well, why would you go to a funeral of somebody who's forgotten, who nobody knows about? I've preached funerals like that. You're going to have a memorial service and they say, well, the truth is they've outlived all their family. There's hardly going to be anybody there because they don't know anybody anymore. It's sad. It's a sad thing. Now, here is this person who has all of this blessing And yet, it's clear that there's a sourness. There's a lack of fulfillment. There's a lack of of completion. There's, There's a lack of satisfaction with what has been given. He says all these blessings, and yet, he's forgotten. Now, notice the extremely pessimistic viewpoint that he expresses. He says it would be much better if this man rather than living 2,000 years, if he had just died immediately before even seeing the light of day. It would be better if he were an untimely birth. It would be better if he just didn't come into this world. You know, there's many people who have this 
same pessimistic viewpoint of life, after they have lived life and they've experienced some of the disappointments in life, they say, it would have been better if I had never been born. It would have been better if I had not lived all of this time. What a disappointment, what a, what a sorrow, what a waste all of this is. At least, he says, if I had been born before I saw, or if I had died before I saw the light of day, then I wouldn't have had to experience all the pain of life, which is exactly how many people feel about their life. They, they look at their life and all they can see is the hurt and the pain. And then he makes this statement in verse 6, at the very end of the verse, do not all go to one place. And he's referring to the fact that all die. Whether it is a young child or a very old man, Eventually, we're all going to die. Eventually, we're all going to go to the same place in this sense that this life, this physical life is going to end and we are going to face death. No matter how long you live, you are headed to the grave. And this causes many people to become extremely pessimistic. They say, what's the point of life? Uh, Why why be excited about life? We're all just going to die anyway. And many people become dissatisfied and disappointed. Now remember, his perspective is under the sun. And I have, to, I have to point out to you that if we didn't have an eternal perspective and we didn't understand the real meaning of life as God defines it, many of us would probably agree with the preacher. There's a third disappointment that he expresses in verses 7 through the end of the chapter. And this one seems to be the capstone of it all. He says, all the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not filled. All of his, the the word labor denotes extremely hard work. It it denotes a life that is given over to toil. He he has poured his life out. He's given of himself to produce something. And then all that he produces, all that he gains from his work he brings back, and what happens to it? It's for his mouth. It's, in other words, it's for his appetites. It's for the things that he enjoys. He, he consumes it, and yet the irony is his appetite is not filled. He's never quite got enough. He's never quite, and here's the key word, satisfied. Life just doesn't fill him up. Now, when you talk to people in our world today, this describes many people. They're always trying for just a little bit more, a little bit more money, a little bit more prestige, a a, a little bit more position, a little bit more whatever it is that they're after, a little bit more pleasure. The wise man says there's a lot of different approaches to life. He describes a wise man and a fool, and he asks the question, what does the wise man have that the fool doesn't have? Now, clearly, we know from the Scripture that wisdom is better than foolishness, but understand, again, he's looking at it through the perspective of man, under the sun, apart from God's wisdom. He says, what's the difference between the wise man and the fool? Does the wise man have a better life? Well, you would have to agree from a worldly perspective that the wise man doesn't really have a better life. 
It doesn't seem like there's that much of a difference. I mean, after all, they both die. Uh, They both have troubles. They both have difficulties in their life. He says, what's the difference between the poor and the rich? What's the difference between people who have a lot or people who have a little? At the end of the day, no matter how much you have, it's never enough. You're never happy with what you have. Now, he says something really interesting in verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. Verse 9 is making this statement that it's better to see your, des- your desires fulfilled than to have wandering desires. Wandering desires could be characterized as always looking for something new, always looking for something better. And because we live in such a consumer-driven society, and because we have so much available to us, isn't it incredible how we can get something and, and the very minute we get it, we start looking for the next best thing. Okay, I got this, but maybe there's a better model. Maybe there's a, a, a different iteration, which would be more pleasurable. Oh, you know, if I got this one, then maybe I'll get that one next time. And it's like, we can't even be happy with the thing that we got for a short period of time because we're our, our desire is wandering. So he says, you know, it's better that at least your desire would be fulfilled. But the problem is that even fulfilling your desires, even accomplishing the thing that you have wanted, that you've longed after, that maybe something that you've wanted and you've saved your money and you went and purchased it, did it really make you happy? Did it really fill you up? His conclusion is, no. It's vanity and vexation of spirit. Verse 10, he's expressing a pessimistic, fatalistic view of life. He says, that which hath been is named already, and it's known that it's man. In other words, same old, same old. This is a repetition of something we saw in, I believe, chapter 3, when he expressed this in a little bit more detail. He says, it's all the same stuff, just over and over again. Life is like a broken record. It just keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. Why do we say that broken record? I'll bet more than half of the congregation has never played a record in their life. I assume we all understand what that means. It's just repeating Just skipping and back and back and back. And it looks like the same thing over and over again. And then he says in verse 10, Neither may he contend with him that is mightier than he. Presumably the one that is mightier than he that is being referred to is God himself. But he's taking this viewpoint, a fatalistic viewpoint. What does it matter? God decides it all anyway. God already decided it all. It's just going to happen in a fatalistic way. What does it matter what you do or what you don't do? By the way, this is a wrong perspective of God's sovereignty, of God's involvement in the affairs of men. And we do believe that God rules and reigns. We do believe that God expresses his omnipotence and his sovereignty in the world. But we also believe that man has a capacity to choose, that man has a a, a part to play in the world that God has created and placed man into 
But we shouldn't live in a fatalistic way. But many people have this, this fatalistic viewpoint, whether it's God that they blame this on or whether it's just the power of the universe or however they express it. It's just like, well, there's nothing you can do. Life is going to happen the way life is going to happen. So whatever. And it's this hopeless, fatalistic, pessimistic view of life. Have you ever talked with somebody, somebody that has this type of a view? I have. I've talked to many, many people like this. People who are like, well, I don't even understand the purpose of life. Why am I even here? What is the, what is the point of it all? Then he goes on in verse 11. He says, seeing there be many things that increase vanity... What is man the better? What is he talking about? Things that increase vanity. Well, the truth is that the more you get, the more empty you tend to be. And many people have remarked about this. In their pursuit after real satisfaction, in their desire to fulfill uh, their, their, their desires and, to, and to, to feel fulfilled, to be satisfied in life, they've come to the conclusion that no matter how much they get, nothing can make them happy. It's like the more they get, the more miserable they get the more dissatisfied and discouraged and disappointed they get. And and they say, what is the point of all of this? Now, I warned you, this is a pessimistic chapter. This is dark. This is heavy. But this is the way that many people look at life. At least when they're having a low day. Now, maybe then... They'll have a fun experience and experience some pleasure and they'll be happy for a few minutes, for maybe a few days. But the truth is that most people return right back to the same viewpoint because no matter how much pleasure they get, they realize that it never satisfies. It's like the person who becomes an addict of drugs. They're addicted to drugs. And sadly, they find that in chasing that high... They always have to have more and more. They heap upon themselves more and more destruction, and then they're trapped. And and they they realize, I I can't break this habit. I can't get out of it. Or or people who have this idea, well, I'll, I'll really be happy if I could just... Uh, if I could party with my friends. And so they go and party and they have a great time. I mean, here, this last weekend was party weekend. Everyone was partying. Did they have fun? Oh, sure, for a little while. How about the next day? How about after they found out the things that they did when they were not cognizant of their actions? Was that fun? No, the truth is that sin has a terrible cost. There's a terrible price to it. And it leaves you empty. It leaves you wanting. It leaves you searching for something more. And this is exactly what the preacher is describing. The riches of this world will never fill you up, will never make you happy. All they do is increase vanity. It's like emptiness and worthlessness just gets more and more and more abundant. I was listening to a a podcast the other day, a secular podcast, and the, the fellow that was hosting the podcast was interviewing a man who's a psychiatrist. And this man and his work deals with a lot of people who have chronic anxiety and depression. And he made this assertion 
He said, we are seeing record numbers of anxiety and depression in our culture right now, especially among young men. And the podcast host asked him, why do you feel that that is? Why do you believe that is so? And his answer without hesitation was, because of the affluence of our society. Because so many young people grow up without any hardship at all. They have everything handed to them. Their life is easy relative to previous generations. He said, we didn't see this kind of depression in earlier generations when people struggled and things were difficult. And his theory is that satisfaction is often converse. It's, all, it's often inverse to easiness. In other words, sometimes the harder life is, the happier people are. And the easier life is, the more miserable people are. Now, why is that? Well, it could have something to do with the soul of man and the way that we're made. I'm not suggesting that we have to go out and try purposely to make our lives hard so that we can be happy. That's probably not going to work either. But I am going to point out to you that there is a fundamental problem in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. And the fundamental problem is that all of this is life viewed through the eyes of mortal man. It's man making a judgment about the worth of life. So he leaves us with two haunting questions in verse 12. And again, apart from God's wisdom and God's revelation, these questions are perhaps the most depressing part of the entire chapter. So he asks the question first, Who knoweth what is good for man in this life? All the days of his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow. Can you hear the bitterness in his voice about life? His vain, empty life that's just spent like a shadow. What is this all? In other words... How can I have a good life? How can I actually enjoy life? I just want to have some joy in my life. I want to have some satisfaction in my life. How do I get it? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this the question that millions and millions of people are asking in our culture tonight? They are desperately looking for some kind of satisfaction. They're looking for some kind of fulfillment. They want to know, how can I live a good life? Surely somebody knows. Just tell me what to do. Give me a three-step program. Why do you think the self-help section of the bookstore is the one that's in the most demand? If somebody says, I found the secret formula for life and writes a book about it, it's going to be on the New York Times bestseller if they can convince people that they actually know something. Because there's millions, perhaps billions of people who are trying to figure out how do you have a good life? They want to know the answer to this question. The second question he asks in verse 12, for who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? Okay. What if I have a good life? Then what? So I live for 70 or 80 years and I die then what happens? Is this really all that there is? Now, some philosophers have outright claimed there's absolutely nothing on the other side. It's just you die, your body goes in the ground, you cease to exist, you go back to dust, that's it, you're done. 
Others think, well, I'm not sure. It's the great unknown. Some people have uh, caused, called it the, the, the great leap into the dark. Or uh, somehow they have this idea, well, we don't know what's on the other side. So we're just going to step across there. Maybe there's something, maybe there's not. And we just have no way of knowing. Many people live believing this. They have this philosophy that it's really not possible to know what's after uh, this life that no one can really tell you. And therefore, what's the point of trying to figure it out? Just uh, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Isn't that what the rich man said in the parable that the Lord told in his earthly ministry? And isn't that how many people are living in the world around you? Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. At least I'll die satiated. At least I'll, I'll die full. At least I'll die with my barns full. And, and, and life will be okay until the time that I face death. Who knows how to live a good life? And who knows what happens to life under the sun, uh, after life under the sun? And chapter 6 just ends that way. There are questions that are left hanging. Just sitting there. There's a heaviness in the silence. He doesn't answer them. But thank God we have an answer for these two questions. Thank God that God has filled in some of the blanks that we are not bound to view life from under the sun. Let's think about the answer to these two questions. First of all, how can a person have a good life? Does the Bible tell us anything about this? It most certainly does. The whole tenor of the scriptures indicates and reveals to us that as a special creation of God, you and I were made specifically for the purpose of bringing God pleasure and bringing glory to His name. And if we can understand that that is our purpose in life and we give ourselves completely to that purpose, what we find is that in the doing of it, we find a good life. We find all the things that we have been hoping for. Now, I'm not suggesting tonight that you're going to end up with only blessings and never any trials or that your life will be charmed or that nothing bad will ever happen to you. I'm not suggesting any of that at all. But I am saying that it is possible to live a good life when you realize what you were made for and you actually fulfill your purpose. And what you were made for is the glory of God. Any amount of trying to do something that is apart from seeking God's glory will always leave you coming up empty because that's not what you were made for. Have you ever tried to hammer a nail in with a screwdriver because you couldn't find your hammer? And why couldn't you find your hammer? Because one of your sons took it and put it somewhere and can't remember. It's probably in the lawn and next time you mow the lawn, you'll find it. So you try to hammer that nail in with the screwdriver. How effective is it? Not so effective. In fact, it would probably take you less time to set the screwdriver aside and drive to the hardware store and buy a new hammer and come back and hammer the nail in. But you know, there's a lot of people who are trying desperately to be satisfied, to live a good life, and it's just like trying to hammer a nail in with a screwdriver. It's not working. Another metaphor that we sometimes use is it's like trying to put a round peg in a square hole. 
No matter how you turn it or you, you resituate it or you flip it over, it's just not going to work. And it's the same way with trying to wring satisfaction out of life apart from anything other than seeking God's glory. You want a good life? Fear God and keep His commandments. By the way, that is the conclusion the preacher comes to at the end of the book. The answer to the second question, happily, we also know as well. He asked the question, who knoweth, who knoweth, or who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? Now, from man's perspective, it seems like nobody can answer that question. No one has been there. No one has come back to give a report. I know you saw the book on the New York Times bestseller about the guy who went and came back. All right, don't believe that nonsense. A lot of people say, hey, you know, what's on the other side? Nobody really knows. We're just guessing. We're we're not entirely sure. But praise God, as Christians who have a Bible, we have a perspective from God about what's on the other side. And, And we're reminded of this, that it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. This is both sobering, and serious. The fact is that one day every one of us is going to die, and the second that we step into eternity, time ceases and we stand before God. You have entered your appointment. At exactly that moment, it is now officially too late to change. It is too late to be reconciled with God. It is too late to prepare yourself for the judgment. The moment you step before the judge, you better have already done business with him and be prepared for that judgment. Now, we're very blessed to know as well from the scriptures that if we have found peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, if our sins have been reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ... It's going to be a happy event when we step across into eternity because our sins have already been judged at the cross of Christ and heaven awaits. That's something to rejoice about. That's something, in fact, to look forward to. The truth is that in comparison to heaven, this life pales. This life has no joy, uh, no happiness, no riches, no goodness in comparison to what awaits in heaven. To put it another way, you could have the most miserable life on this earth, but if you have a home in heaven, that will all be just a distant shadow for you until the time when God wipes away all the tears and it's forgotten forever. What lies beyond? Judgment, condemnation for some. Praise God, heaven, the presence of God for others. We can rejoice in that. And this makes life tolerable when we understand especially that we have a home that is waiting for us in heaven. It it causes us to see that this life has purpose. Are there things that hurt in this life? Absolutely. Romans chapter 8 reminds us that the whole creation is groaning and travailing together until the day of redemption. You thought it was just your body that was groaning and travailing. 
but it's actually all of creation. All around us, all that God made is anticipating and waiting the day of redemption, the time when God is going to make all things new. And if you're a believer, your heart longs for that time when God wipes away our sin, when he takes it all and it's gone forever in the sense that we will never remember it anymore. He's forgotten. He's putting it behind his back already. But one day you and I will never remember again all of that sin, all of the pain, all of the all of the, the, the harm that we faced in this life and the, the difficulties, one day it's all going to be gone because there is one who says, Behold, I make all things new. Praise God for that. This gives us hope for life. But the truth is, if you're here this evening and your only perspective is under the sun, you have none of this hope. The best that you can hope for is to beat the odds in this life. To, to maybe be more successful than someone else. To, to gather a few more of the trinkets of this world. To hopefully win the health lottery and be healthy for a long time and live a long and prosperous life on this earth. But I ask you the question tonight, then what? Are you ready for what is beyond This was the conclusion that the wise man came to. And I believe it was this conclusion that led him at the end of the book to declare that actually the only thing that matters in life is to fear God and keep his commandments. This is the sum total of life is to actually fulfill the purpose for which God made us. And a person who chooses to live apart from the fear of God is destined to a life under the terror of God. And you know, those are two different things, the fear of God and the terror of God. You don't want to be under his terror. So reverence him and respect him and honor him, and you will find that life will make sense. I'm glad tonight that we have a message we can share with people around us that makes sense out of the difficulties of life and brings us out from under the disappointment that's under the sun and gives us hope of something that is much more meaningful than what we see around us. Tonight, I hope that you have this same perspective, but if you don't, I assure you that you can find it in the person of Jesus Christ and in the message of the gospel, and we would love to share that message with you this evening.